Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the Herald, Wednesday the 2nd of June 2021, from the news section, Calmac, Ferry Breakdown Causes Backlog of Vehicles. This piece is an exclusive by Martin Williams, senior news reporter. Scots Islands have been left with a backlog of vehicles and freight as one of Scotland's oldest publicly owned ferries was taken in for repairs due to a fault. The 21-year-old MV Loch Nevis, which can carry 190 passengers and 14 cars, had to stop all services on the morning of the Springbank holiday because of the technical issue. It later operated a passenger-only service. Calmac engineers were still working on the vessel on Tuesday, leading to further disruption. And, although repairs have been carried out, Calmac was warning users that services to Rum and Canna are liable to cancellation at short notice. The Scottish Government's funded Calmac has had to bring in a passenger charter, MV Larvin, to operate on Tuesday, so that Loch Nevis can get repaired. Calmac said Loch Nevis, which serves the small isles, Egg, Muck, Rum and Canna, has an issue with her thruster so a passenger charter has been arranged. And on Tuesday evening, while the publicly owned ferry operator said the issue with Loch Nevis has been resolved and it was due to be back in service on Wednesday, it was unable to accommodate book day trip passengers to Rum and Canna. It offered apologies for any inconvenience caused and added to clear the backlog of vehicles and freight an amended timetable will operate in all four islands. It comes as Nicola Sturgeon announced that the islands are coming down from level 1 to level 0 COVID restrictions from June the 5th. It means that life in the islands should now be nearer to normal. Technical issues with Loch Nevis have resulted in disruption for the past two weeks. On May the 16th, calls to Rom and Canna were cancelled. One egg resident has sought Calmac's help, saying he has tried to get to the mainland with a car and has been waiting since Sunday. Launched in 2000, the Loch Nevis cost around £5.5 million and was purpose-built as part of a £30 million European Assisted Programme to modernise ferry services to the small isles. Some 25% of its construction costs qualify for support from the European Regional Development Fund. Calmac had also warned that due to an ongoing navigational issue at the entrance to Muck Pier, all sailings to Muck remained liable to disruption and possible cancellation at short notice until the issue is resolved and the service to Egg has continued to be liable to disruption due to an ongoing issue with the peer infrastructure. The latest issues come off the back of the country's ferry building fiasco at the now state-owned Ferguson Marine. The two lifeline ferries being built at Ferguson Marine 
which were due to be set in service in early 2018, are now up to nearly five years behind schedule and the cost is now over double the original £97 million contract. Meanwhile, MV Lock Seaforth returned to services for the 10.30pm freight sailing from Stornoway on Monday after being offline for repairs for nearly seven weeks. She successfully completed her sea trials over the weekend. The return of Calmac's largest vessel has come after complaints of a cancellation of a freight sailing on Lewis at the weekend, leaving behind at least seven articulated lorries, three with loads of salmon. Calmac said on Wednesday morning that the Loch Nevis will operate the following timetable today. Depart Malig 1010, arrive Ram 1130, depart Ram 1150, arrive Cana 1250, Depart Cana 1310, arrive Mark 1445, depart Mark 1505, arrive Egg 1540, depart Egg 1600, arrive Mill Egg 1720. And that was time using the 24-hour clock. And that article was an exclusive by Martin Williams. From the Herald, Wednesday the 2nd of June 2021, from the news section, COVID-19, British Army drafted in to aid Lothian vaccinations, by Caroline Wilson, senior reporter. The British Armed Forces has been drafted in to accelerate vaccinations in an area of Scotland facing rising cases. NHS Lothian said Army personnel will provide additional capacity at centres from next week as the health board ramps up at first and second doses. The health board has previously warned that mass vaccination centres were facing critical staff shortages and issued an urgent alert for volunteer vaccinators to plug gaps in shifts. A source claimed the health board has up to 400 shifts unfilled until Thursday. Edinburgh has seen an increase in the newly diagnosed COVID cases in the past week, with one area, Davidson's Mains and Silver Nose, named as having the highest rate in Scotland. Pharmacists have claimed major cities, including Glasgow and Edinburgh, are experiencing vaccinator shortages due to a decision to downgrade their payments from £66 per hour, which dentists and other staff receive, to £15, the same rate as nurses. The decision is said to have led to hundreds of local pharmacists abandoning the vaccination programme. NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde apologised yesterday after patients faced a long queue for vaccinations at the Hydro, the city's main centre. Pat Wynne, Nurse Director of Primary and Community Care, NHS Lothian, said NHS Lothian has previously worked with the British Armed Forces in two of our vaccination centres and we have invited them to return to provide extra capacity across our centres and join the race to administer the life-saving vaccine to people of all ages and backgrounds. So far, the number of vaccination appointments in Lothian has increased by an extra 11,000 this week alone, bringing the total to 97,000. These are not just first-dose appointments, but also people who need to have their second dose and those who reschedule their appointments. The, armed Brit- the British Armed Forces will join forces with the NHS Lothian's team of nearly 1,200 vaccinators 
and almost 100 admin staff when they begin at centres next week. NHS Lothian vaccinators who work on a part-time or shift basis as part of our staff bank are also being contacted by email and text to proactively offer extra shifts to continue to boost extra capacity. And that piece was by Caroline Wilson. From the Herald, Wednesday the 2nd of June 2021, from the news section, Scots experts warn over prehistoric climate change levels which will cause major worldwide flooding. By Martin Williams, senior news reporter. Urgent action is needed to avoid major world flooding with a billion people worldwide hit through prehistoric levels of climate change, a new Scots survey has warned. The research involving looking at the historic carbon dioxide levels warns that despite efforts to cut greenhouse gases, the last time CO2 was as high as it is now, it was warm enough for beech trees to grow in Antarctica and enough ice melted to raise sea level by 20 metres. The study, led by the University of St Andrews, says that sea level rise would mean there would be a billion people worldwide whose homes would be flooded, along with major flooding of at least 25 of the world's largest cities. It comes as a separate WWF study highlighted what is at stake for 12 species from around the world, including two key Scottish species, should the upcoming climate talks in Glasgow fail to reach agreement on keeping temperature rises below 1.5 degrees. The Scots scientists collecting data spanning the last 66 million years to provide new insights into the kinds of climates we can ultimately expect if CO2 levels continue to rise at the current rate. They say the projected rise will result in prehistoric levels of warmth that have never been experienced by humans. The study, published in the scientific journal Annual Review of Earth and Planetary Sciences, provides the most complete history to date of how CO2 has changed over the last 66 million years, the time since dinosaurs last roamed the planet. The authors say the data collected shows more clearly than ever before the link between CO2 and climate. Working with colleagues from Texas A&M University, the University of Southampton, and the Swiss University ETH Zurich, the international team pulled together data collected over the last 15 years using high-tech laboratory techniques. Samples were taken from cores of mud from the deep sea floor, where microscopic fossils and ancient molecules accumulate, preserving a story of what CO2 and the climate looked like at the time. By firing these ancient atoms through supersensitive instruments, scientists can detect the chemical fingerprints of the past changes in CO2, which can be compared with the present-day changes. For example, the study explains, through fossil fuel burning and deforestation, how humans have now driven CO2 back to levels not seen since around 3 million years ago. Dr James Ray, from the University of St Andrews School of Earth and Environmental Sciences, who led the international team, said, If we allow fossil fuel burning to continue to grow, our grandchildren may experience CO2 levels that haven't been seen on Earth for around 50 million years, a time when crocodiles roamed the Arctic. He added, CO2 has transformed the face of our planet before, and unless we cut emissions as quickly as possible, it will do it again. At the COP26 in Glasgow this November, 
politicians were working international agreements to lower CO2 emissions to net zero levels and prevent CO2 rising further. And that piece was by Martin Williams. Recorded from the Herald on the 2nd of June 2021, from the sports section, Ailey Doyle announces retirement from athletics with poignant farewell to glittering career by Susan Icklestaff. After a glitching, glittering career spanning over two decades, Scotland's most decorated track and field athlete Ailey Doyle has announced her retirement. Doyle is the only Scottish athlete to have won Olympic, World, European and Commonwealth medals, but less than two months out from the Tokyo Olympics, the 400-metre hurdler has hung up her spikes. Doyle gave birth to her son Campbell in January of last year and was targeting a spot in the 4x400m relay team for the Tokyo Olympics last summer. The postponements of the Games as a result of the pandemic gave the 34-year-old more time to regain her fitness, but her comeback was beset by injury setbacks, the most recent being a torn calf and a broken toe in the space of just a few weeks. So with the British trials just three weeks away, Doyle has made the decision to call it a day. Athletics has all my heart, focus and love, but today I announce my retirement as a competitive athlete, she said in a statement. I take with me so many amazing memories, but most importantly, I step away happy in the knowledge that this is the right time for me to go. I'm not saying it was an easy decision to make, but it was the right one, and I'm grateful I got to choose when it happened. Doyle's last competitive appearance was as a member of the silver medal winning relay team at the European Indoor Championships in Glasgow in 2019. But despite having been absent from the competitive arena for over two years, she has remained heavily involved in the sport as a board member of Scottish Athletics and also a trustee of the newly formed Athletics Trust Scotland, a charitable spin-off from Scottish Athletics that will aim to raise funds, boost the sport's reach and impact at grassroots. Doyle's statement continued, The sport has brought me so much more than just medals. I have made lifelong friends, experienced incredible atmospheres, made history and even met my husband because of it. Now we have our wee boy Campbell and so much more to look forward to as a family. I do find it fitting, however, that my last international competition was winning a silver medal in front of a home crowd in Glasgow. Athletics will always hold a special place in my heart and now I get to enjoy it from the other side as a fan. What an adventure it has been, and now I look forward to the next one, whatever it may be. Mark Pollard, Head of Performance with Scottish Athletics, paid tribute to Doyle, saying, It is fitting and hugely appropriate that as Ailey retires from competitive athletics, we say a huge thank you. It is safe to say Ailey has made a massive contribution to our sport. This has been shown via her medals for Team Scotland as well as GB in Northern Ireland. Countless international circuit appearances and British Championship medals. But over a period of 25 years, from coming into the sport at nine, it has been so much more than that. She's a classic example of a youngster coming through the club system at Pitrivi AAC and then stepping up the levels and making it to the top of her sport. I would say a huge feature of Ailey's career has been her ability to maximise her talent thanks to hard work and dedication. That's a key essence of our sport. Can you be the best version of yourself? We would very much hope she hasn't she won't be lost to the sport. Ailey has some background roles with Scottish Athletics and Athletics Trust Scotland, and I am certain in the coming months we will explore other possibilities. She has so much experience and knowledge to pass on, and we'd love to tap into that to help the next generation follow in her footsteps. 
That article was by Susan Egglestuff. From the Herald Scotland, dated Wednesday, 2nd June, 2021. From the Voices section. Unmasking the real reason for politicians' Covid hysteria. An article by Stuart Wayton. As deaths from Covid plummet, will the Scottish Government's mask ever slip? Even driving to Edinburgh for my first weekend away in goodness knows how long, I was reminded by the motorway signs to plan ahead. Apparently I was entering a Covid Level 2 area. Transport Scotland, like almost every other institution and organisation in Scotland, now feels that part of its role is to make us all Covid aware. I'm not sure how many people are sticking to the rules now. Even lockdown lovers who were outraged by the mere slipping of a mask in the past appear to be scratching their heads, wondering what on earth is going on. The NHS is under no threat. As I write this, there's been no deaths for a fifth day running from Covid, with four people in intensive care across the whole of Scotland. Infection rates have increased in some places, but of course almost everyone who was at risk of dying has been vaccinated, so the virus, that has always been a mild risk for the vast majority of the population, is having next to no impact. In pubs and restaurants in Edinburgh, the mask hokey-cokey continues. Stand up, mask on. Sit down, mask off. Walk two yards, on, then back off. Mask wearing was always a minor matter in terms of effectiveness, as we can see with the relatively high number of deaths across the UK. It is also, I suspect, a mechanism for maintaining an elevated consciousness of risk amongst the public, to match the precautionary principle mindset of our health and safety experts. In the context of pubs and restaurants, the mask wearing is performative, something that keeps us in check as part of the new safety etiquette that must be enforced by hospitality managers and staff. Walking along Prince's Street, one of the more worrying signs is the number of young people who wear masks in the open air. The young are likely to be the most affected by messages of fear, having been educated in the etiquette of safety from the day they arrived at school. Safety, as sociologist Frank Faraday noted as far back as 1997, has moved from being a practical matter to a strange type of morality, filling the whole of bygone Christian Puritanism and turning almost any type of behaviour into a potential source of moralising. The logic of lockdown at the moment appears to be we need a lockdown to get out of the lockdown. There is no national emergency or mounting death count and if we were to start from where we are now and introduce all the restrictions we are experiencing there would be public uproar. Unfortunately, we have gotten used to having our freedoms determined by a small group of health experts and politicians. There is no coherent opposition to even the maddest of the measures we face. And so we sit waiting, fingers crossed, that the authorities will allow us to shake a person's hand or live in a world where you can actually see the other person's face. New variants are likely to come and go. The experts are equally likely to take a risk-averse approach and presume the worst. Meanwhile, some health zealots see mask wearing as a new normal, 
a positive outcome of the lockdown that elevates our own risk consciousness. Covid awareness is everywhere and the rule of safe, safer, safest continues to have a moralising dimension that sees everyone from Transport Scotland to education establishments, trade unions and even commercial radio stations pumping out the message of caution. The performative mask wearing is a particular concern given its moralistic rather than scientific dimension. So let's bear in mind that the same people who think we need cigarettes to be hidden from us and the price of alcohol to be hiked even higher are the same patronising behaviour managers who we are trusting with our freedom. This article is by Stuart Wayton. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 2nd of June 2021. Arts and Entertainments. A thriller by Jilly McMillan, true crime by Silver Donald Cameron, dystopian fiction by Julia von Lukadau, paperbacks by Alistair Mabbitt. To tell you the truth, Jilly McMillan, Arrow, £7.99. Lucy is a best-selling crime writer, whose central character, Eliza, is a version of her imaginary childhood friend. To finally exorcise Eliza from her thoughts, Lucy has decided to kill her off. Her agent isn't happy, and neither is her husband Dan, who enjoys the standard of living brought by Lucy's success. When Dan disappears, the finger of suspicion points at her. The trouble is, Lucy doesn't seem to be the most reliable narrator, and we begin to suspect that she may not only have been involved with Dan's disappearance, but also with that of a missing child many years earlier. So we have a thriller writer, Jilly McMillan, writing in the first person as a thriller writer we can't fully trust, who feels like she's been plunged into one of her own plots. It's tangled but clever and compelling with loose ends and red herrings right up to the end. Blood in the Water, Silver Donald Cameron, Swift, £12.99. Petty criminal Philip Boudreau was a thorn in the side of the people of the Cape Breton town of Petit de Gras. Constantly threatening and stealing from them, he had spent half his adult life in prison but kept coming back. One day in 2013, three fishermen went out to sea to find Boudreau vandalising their lobster traps, shot at him and rammed his boat. His body was never found. Renowned author Silver David Cameron, who died last year, had lived in the area since 1971. He knew Cape Breton and its people well, and in his final book he presents Boudreau's murder in the context of a community he understood, making it as much an insightful social history as it is a slice of true crime. As such, it will be interesting to see how well it translates to the screen in the forthcoming adaptation by Trailer Boy's co-creator, Barry Dunn. The High Rise Diver Julia von Lukadau, World Editions, £12.99. In a future dystopia, Riva is a high-rise diver who leaps off tall buildings in a flight suit, this being one of the few ways poor people from the peripheries can share in the prosperity of the city dwellers. But lately, Riva has been refusing to train. Her coach and sponsors bring in a psychologist, Hitomi, to study Riva so that her rebelliousness can be curbed and the wayward athlete can brought back into the fold. As Hitomi spies on Riva, she realises the extent of the surveillance she herself is under and starts to buckle under the strain. 
With shades of Brave New World in 1984, alongside current concerns about social status and job security being determined by continuous electronic assessment, the high-rise diver portrays a chillingly credible world with no place for individuality, with a poignant depiction by Yvonne Lukadow of the compassion and humanity that nevertheless refuses to be extinguished. By Alistair Mabbitt. Thursday the 3rd of June 2021. News. Israeli-owned oil firm eyes development east of Aberdeen. This article is by Mark Williamson. North Sea oil firms have underlined their belief in the value of new field developments in the area in spite of calls for a halt on activity after the price of Brent crude rose above pre-pandemic levels. Jersey Oil and Gas said it has had interest from multiple parties after launching a hunt for partners to fund work on a major new production complex in the Mori Firth. Israeli-owned Ithaca Energy said it has submitted a plan to develop the Abigail field for regulatory approval as it posted a £220,155,000 first quarter profit. The news from the firms came amid growing calls from environmentalists for exploration and development activity to be halted in the North Sea. Campaigners were boosted last month when a global energy industry watchdog said there should be an immediate end to new fossil fuel developments, including those involving oil and gas fields. The International Energy Agency said the result of the efforts made by government so far to tackle climate change would likely fall well short of what would be needed to achieve net zero targets. However, on Tuesday, BP Chief Executive Bernard Looney insisted the world would need oil and gas for decades to come, amid what was likely to be a long transition to a cleaner energy system. BP has said the North Sea is one of the core oil and gas regions from which it expects to generate the profits required to invest in areas such as wind power. Brent crude sold for $71.35 per barrel yesterday afternoon, up $1.10 per barrel on the day. It sold for around $70 per barrel in January last year. The price has almost doubled since November, amid hopes that coronavirus vaccines will fuel a strong recovery. Market sentiment was boosted on Tuesday when members of the OPEC plus grouping of exporting states decided that curbs on production should only be eased slightly. The curbs were imposed last year after oil prices plunged amid the fallout from the pandemic. Jersey Oil and Gas said it proposed Greater Buchanan Area development was consistent with the UK's net zero drive. The company expects to power the platform using electricity rather than the gas-fired generators that are commonly employed. Chief Executive Andrew Bennett said, Our chosen development concept ensures that through electrification, the GBA development could produce less than one kilogram of CO2 per barrel produced, fully aligned with the UK's net zero targets. The first phase of the proposed development would involve restarting production from the Buchanan field. Buchanan was shut down in 2017 
after the then operator, Repsol Sinopec Resources UK, decided it made commercial sense to decommission the associated production facilities. Studies completed by Jersey suggested the field could still contain around 130 million barrels. Jersey has set out to recruit a partner to help fund the costs of the GBA development through a farm-out process. The company said yesterday, the GBA farm-out process has received broad interest and participation from multiple parties. With the diligence process ongoing, it is premature to comment further on the process at this stage. The plan for GBA also includes the development of the Verbier find that Jersey made in 2017 with Norway's Equinor, which was called Statoil at the time. The field generated excitement in the industry amid the last downturn. However, appraisal drilling suggested it was smaller than hoped. Equinor sold its stake in the acreage to Jersey in January last year. In a summary of highlights of the first quarter, Ithaca Energy noted it had submitted a field development plan for Abigail to the Oil and Gas Authority. It plans to link Abigail to facilities installed for the Stella field, which was brought into production in 2017. In April, Ithaca approved a £400 million plan to try to increase production from the Captain field northeast of Aberdeen. Ithaca acquired a stake in Captain with a $2 billion North Sea portfolio it bought from America's Chevron in 2019. Ithaca was acquired by Israel's Dalek in a £1 billion deal in 2017. The company's first quarter profit was in line with the same period last year. Dalek said in January that it was considering a plan to float Ithaca on the London and Tel Aviv stock exchanges. Former Ithaca Energy boss Les Thomas became a director of Jersey Oil and Gas in April. This article is by Mark Williamson. The Herald, Thursday the 3rd of June 2021. News. £1 million project will allow lost poetry by Sir Walter Scott to be published. This article is by Martin Williams. He is credited with popularising tartan, saving the Scottish banknote and rediscovering the nation's crown jewels. But Sir Walter Scott is best known for a string of best-selling books which dominated the 19th century, changing how the world saw Scotland and the nation saw itself. His classics of both English language literature and Scottish literature include the novels Ivanhoe, Rob Roy, Waverley, Old Mortality or The Tale of Old Mortality, The Heart of Midlothian and The Bride of Lammermoor. But his speed of writing due to the hunger for his work and his notoriously spidery handwriting meant that many errors occurred during the printing process. Now a million pound project has been launched to enable the publication of a complete edition of Walter Scott's poetry and help to make it accessible to new audiences. Researchers at the University of Aberdeen's Walter Scott Research Centre want to return his poetry to a form which more closely reflects his original intentions 
and to create five volumes of what will eventually be a complete ten-volume edition of his verse, published by Edinburgh University Press. They will also bring to life the extensive notes that Scott added to his poems to offer readers what the centre says is a deeper insight and understanding of the meaning behind them. Few of these notes survive in modern editions, but Scott used them to provide fascinating pieces of background information for his poems. The project will be led by Professor Alison Lumsden, who has acquired unparalleled knowledge of Scott and his creative practices and developed expertise in reading his handwriting through her work in creating the Edinburgh edition of his novels. These scholarly editions revealed insights into social circumstances at the time, the way in which the text was produced, about vocabulary and about what people understood about history in the period. It is hoped that similar treatment of his poetry will also uncover deeper stories of Scotland's past. Professor Lumsden said, unlike Walter Scott novels, which have never been out of publication since they were released, there are very few editions of his poetry, and those which do exist are severely compromised by 19th century editing practices. Scott was a prolific writer, and as well as the poems themselves, he produced long notes which are almost like alternative stories. He wrote these to offer a greater insight into the characters, events and experiences contained within his verse, but these almost always disappeared in modern printed versions. We want to reinstate Scott's notes as part of the reading experience and to establish texts as close as possible to the author's wishes. Scott continued to revise his poems between editions and for The Lady of the Lake, for example, six different versions were printed within six months, so it is easy to see how errors begin to creep in. In addition to Scott's own notes, the research team will also provide their own detailed explanations to support the modern reader and to help open up his work to new audiences. They will work with staff at Scott's home, Abbotsford, now a living museum, to create teaching materials for schools which will introduce pupils to the stories in Scott's poetry and the rich legacy they provide for Scotland. The Million Pound Project has received support to the tune of 80% of its costs from the Arts and Humanities Research Council, part of UK Research and Innovation. It will fund Professor Lumsden, two additional co-investigators in Aberdeen and a co-investigator at the University of Edinburgh, as well as a research fellow and a part-time outreach officer post. Professor Lumsden added, In the year that we celebrate the 250th anniversary of Scott's birth, this award underlines his continued relevance, not just in Scotland, but on the international stage. In his poems, he writes about the relationship between state and citizens, the marginalisation of certain groups and the role of women, all issues which continue to resonate today. The basis of the modern image of Scotland and our sense of Scotland is embedded in Scott's writing. He is such an important part of our cultural heritage and this project will ensure that his legacy is preserved with the accuracy and detail it deserves.
This article is by Martin Williams. Recorded from the Herald on the 3rd of June 2021. From the Sports Section. John Hughes in frame for Celtic return following Ross County exit. By Aidan Smith. Reports this morning have suggested that John Hughes is in the frame to become manager of Celtic's new Colt team. Yogi departed Ross County this summer after keeping the Staggies in the Scottish Premiership. He had been linked with the vacant Dundee United job after Mickey Mellon departed, but the Daily Record now say that he could join his former side Celtic. Both the Hoops and Rangers have been given the green light to include Colt sides in the Lowland League from next season. The plans would see both teams blood their young players in the fifth tier of Scottish football for one season only, but not be eligible for promotion into Scottish League 2. Hughes starred for Celtic in 1995-1996 and has also taken charge of Falkirk, Wraith Rovers, Inverness Cali Thistle and Hartlepool during his time in management. That article was by Aidan Smith. From the Herald Scotland dated Thursday, 3rd June 2021. From the Voices section. Sturgeon needs to purge narcissists waging civil war in the party. An article by Neil McKay, writer at large. The SNP couldn't even wait a month, could it? Less than four weeks have passed since the Holyrood election and the party is at it again. Feuds are breaking out. Backbiting beginning. Grandstanding and egos are on show. It's a disgraceful sight. Scotland gave the SNP the benefit of the doubt on May the 6th, ushering the party into its 14th year in power despite a shameful catalogue of infighting and splits leading up to the vote, as the Nationalists tore themselves apart over trans rights and the aftermath of the Salmon Circus. With opposition parties barely worth the name, many voters saw Nicola Sturgeon as the only person with the ability to lead. But Sturgeon isn't her party. Her party is filled with grifters and charlatans, in it for themselves and their egos, not the Scottish people. If they were in it for the Scottish people, they'd get their heads down and do the work needed. Instead, the psychodramas return. There's been three resignations since the weekend. Douglas Chapman MP quit as the party's treasurer, saying he'd not received the support or financial information to carry out his job. Former Scottish Government Minister Marco Biaggi resigned as head of the party's independence task force. Biaggi reportedly said the position had become the worst job he'd ever had. It was also reported Biaggi said he was disappointed that his former constituency, Edinburgh Central, decided to have a pompous, impressionable idiot than me. That's taken as a reference to Angus Robertson, selected as the party candidate ahead of the election, defeating Biaggi. An SNP source described Biaggi as ineffective. An SNP source also described Chapman as a malcontent who wants to take on the leadership and was one of the first people many suspected would jump to the Alba party. Well, there's certainly been enough of those in the recent past. Joanna Cherry shortly arrived on the scene, using social media, of course, to resign from the SNP's ruling body, the National Executive Committee. Cherry claimed she'd been prevented from doing the job properly. Are the people of Scotland supposed to care about this? About the petty internal squabbles of a political party 
whose elected members should be diligently running this country, as we've instructed them to do, as we pay them to do. These feuds sting of privilege and narcissism. The issues are petty and interfere with the good governance of Scotland, especially now at a time of crisis and pandemic. The behaviour of the feuders is that of spoiled children. If they don't like being in the party of a government, then quit. Find another job. Go join Alba. Retire. Volunteer for a charity. Do something other than waste the time of the Scottish people. These feuds must drain the resources and abilities of Nicola Sturgeon. Such endless disruption must sap time she needs to expend working for this country. It doesn't matter how diligent or committed an individual might be. If you've a dozen squalling children at your feet, you'll inevitably become distracted. These feuds only matter because they pose a risk to Scotland. Their substance is nonsensical, but their impact could be grave. This country, like every other nation on earth, faces a desperate struggle to recover from pandemic. We may be at a start of a third wave. Yet what are we offered by the SNP? Feuds and infighting by the selfish and overweening who put their ego projects ahead of country. These feuds go on as doctors, nurses and teachers face health and education systems buckling under the pressure of pandemic. One SNP source was quoted the other day describing the party as a, quote, SH asterisk T show, unquote. How perspicacious. Key information, it seems, isn't being shared within the party as the SNP is paranoid about leaks and disloyalty. Leaders worry that treacherous members in senior positions will share secrets with the Alba party. Everything the SNP now does falls short. We have to ask why. The Jimmy Reid Foundation says the flagship employment programme, Fair Work, is limited, weak and oversold. Rhetoric hasn't matched action. It's improbable goals will be met. Most workplace improvements are down to trade unions, not the Fair Work programme. Another Potemkin village. It's probably easier to throw up phony PR than really work to change the country for the better if half your energies are consumed by squabbling. Asking who is right and who is wrong in this SNP feud misses the point entirely. Internecine party squabbles mean nothing to ordinary people beyond the fact that such feuds distract from running the country properly. What does Scotland do about this insulting nonsense from the party of government? We're in something of a bad bind now. Labour, Tories and Lib Dems are incapable of holding the SNP to account or offering an alternative vision for the country. The SNP is literally the best of a bad bunch. That's Scotland's dilemma. We've got the best on offer and it sucks. Even if you're a die-hard SNP supporter, this must be soul-destroying. How can the party even concentrate on its flagship policy, independence, when it's so riven? No wonder the prospectus for independence has gone nowhere since 2014. Metaphors like fiddling while Rome burns don't do justice to the juvenilia of the SNP's feuding contingent.
That gives them some status, some grandeur. In truth, the best metaphor for the SNP and its wearisome band of malcontents is to be found in the pages of Jonathan Swift's Gulliver Travels. Lilliput, fittingly the island of the little people, has a long history of pointless, idiotic civil war. Some Lilliputians open their boiled eggs from the big end, others from the small end. They're the big endians and small endians, and they hate each other. Lilliput is a chaotic mess, but big endians and small endians don't care. They've a petty war to finish, and the country and the people can go hang for all they care. The SNP won't stop this feuding nonsense. There's nobody to knock heads together. We've got to endure this insulting idiocy for another five years. Perhaps a brutal purge by Sturgeon is the only answer. This article was by Neil McKay. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 3rd of June 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Sam Hewn, Outlander actor thrilled about Men in Kilts Award nomination by Sarah Pacciaroni, multimedia reporter. Outlander star Sam Hewn said he was thrilled that Men in Kilts has received a nomination for a top TV award. The actor from Bal and Galloway took to Instagram to express his satisfaction in the news. The star's travel show, which sees Hewn and fellow Outlander star Graeme McTavish journey across Scotland to explore its breathtaking landscapes, rich history and culture, has been nominated for Best Travel Stroke Adventure Show at the Real TV Awards. The first season of the eight-episode travel series, which is available on Amazon Prime, shows the pair whiskey-tasting, folk-dancing, hanging off the edge of a cliff, wrangling a flock of wild sheep while discovering the true legacy of their Outlander characters. Men in Kilts is up against other successful shows, including National Geographic's Running Wild with Bear Grylls, Netflix's Someday Feed Phil, CNN's Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy, and the Food Network's The Great Food Truck Race. The actor wrote, So thrilled our wee show has been nominated for a At Critics' Choice Award. Huge thank you to At SPTV and At Stars for believing in our project, At Boardwalk Pictures and At Great Glen Company for the hard work, and of course my great companion At Graham McTavish. What a ride. The Critics' Choice Association announced the nominations for the third annual Critics' Choice Real TV Awards on Wednesday and the winners will be announced on June 21 by Sarah Pacciaroni. The Herald, Friday the 4th of June 2021. News. And the farce goes on. Anger over more Calmac chaos as two island ferries are hit by issues. This article is by Martin Williams. Islanders and travellers have faced another day of chaos as ferry operator Calmac has had to bring in another passenger ferry as technical problems hit two of its ageing fleet. It has emerged that while trying to deal with a backlog of vehicles and freight in the service to Egg, Muck, Rum and Canna after repair work was carried out to the thruster of 21-year-old car ferry MV Loch Nevis, it has broken down again. This time it is a problem with the centre shaft generator circuit breaker. And a technical issue with 12-year-old MV Finlagen, which runs from Kenna Craig on the Argyle of Brute, mainland to Islay, has led to further cancellations. Calmac investigated with the use of divers, meaning sailings were cancelled. 
The ferry firm said it was the result of Finlagen striking something in the water and it had to be checked for damage. The issue was understood to have been resolved in mid-afternoon. Problems with Loch Nevis have resulted in disruption for the past three weeks. On May the 16th, calls to rum and canna had to be cancelled. Loch Nevis, which can carry 190 passengers and 14 cars, had to stop all services on the morning of the Springbank holiday because of the technical issue. It later operated a passenger-only service and brought in a passenger charter MV Larvin to operate on Tuesday so that it can be repaired. On Tuesday evening, while the publicly owned ferry operator said the issue with Loch Nevis has been resolved and it was due to be back in service on Wednesday, it was unable to accommodate booked day trip passengers to Rama and Canna. It offered apologies for any inconvenience caused and it added, to clear the backlog of vehicles and freight, an amended timetable will operate to all four islands but further sailings were cancelled on Thursday morning before CalMax said that due to continuing problems with Loch Nevis, services to Muck and Egg had to be cancelled. It decided to bring in MV Larvin again to be able to at least provide a passenger service. The ferry operators said services to Romancana continues to be liable to disruption or cancellation at short notice, and on Friday morning said services to Muck and Egg would again be cancelled. One Egg resident, Stuart Ferguson, posted a complaint with CalMac saying, CalMac ferries working hard to ensure your trip to the Small Isles are a complete disaster. He added, come for a day trip to Egg, but we won't come back and collect you. He said CalMac are just providing the possible worst service in terms of cancellations, etc. We have tidal issues, fender problems, and now the boat has technical issues. Since we went into summer timetable, there have been timetable amendments just about every week, resulting in tourists, locals, finding it hard to impossible to organise any sort of travel. This is on top of the fact that due to social distancing, the boat is reduced to 40 passengers instead of 190. You can imagine how infuriating this is on so many levels. I run the cafe and bar, so the effect is quite measurable in terms of loss of business. It comes as Nicola Sturgeon announced that the islands are coming down from level 1 to level 0 COVID restrictions from Saturday. It means that life in the islands should now move nearer to normal. Launched in 2000, the Loch Nevis cost around £5.5 million and was purpose-built as part of a £30 million European-assisted programme to modernise ferry services to the small isles. Some 25% of its construction costs qualified for support from the European Regional Development Fund. The latest issues come off the back of the country's ferry building fiasco at the now state-owned Ferguson Marine. The two lifeline ferries being built at Ferguson Marine, which were due to be in service in early 2018, are now up to nearly five years behind schedule and their cost is now over double the original £97 million contract. 
Meanwhile, MV Loch C4 returned to services for the 10.30pm freight sailing from Stornoway on Monday after being offline for repairs for nearly seven weeks. She successfully completed her sea trials over the weekend. The return of CalMac's largest vessel came after complaints of a cancellation of a freight sailing on Lewis at the weekend, leaving behind at least seven articulated lorries, three with loads of salmon. This article is by Martin Williams. The Herald, Friday the 4th of June 2021. News. Transmit boss slams Project Fear with call to end social distancing. This article is by Christy Dorsey. Music promoter Jeff Ellis has blasted what he called the Scottish Government's Project Fear approach to handling the pandemic while calling for a firm date when Scotland can drop social distancing measures that have crippled the industry. The chief executive of DF Concerts also said he is supremely confident that Glasgow's Transmit Festival will go ahead in September. He further revealed that he is working on putting together at least three new events that will take place in 2022, which he predicted will be one of the busiest on record for Scotland. Speaking at a virtual event organised by Glasgow Chamber of Commerce, Mr Ellis warned that Scotland is losing out to England, where June the 21st has been given as the most likely date when social distancing will end. No such date has been given in Scotland. The Scottish Government think that the UK Government will fall on its face. That's obvious and we all know that, he said. However, they have the confidence in England, so even if there was a delay for a couple of weeks, even if other caveats come into play, the confidence is there. So what we are seeing is we are seeing artists, we are seeing suppliers taking work in England, and not in Scotland because they can get the commitments in England post June the 21st that do not exist in Scotland. Conferences are moving to England because they can get assurances that they can take place in October, November, December. Those assurances nobody can give in Scotland. Although the massive Glastonbury Festival has been cancelled for a second year, tickets to events such as Manchester's Park Life, Creamfields and the Reading and Leeds festivals have sold out in record time, with record sales north of the border. By contrast, ticket sales in Scotland remain sluggish because of what Mr Ellis described as Project Fear, led by National Clinical Director Jason Leach. In England, nightclubs have hope for reopening, he said. In Scotland, not only do they not have hope of a date for reopening, but they're constantly referred to by Jason Leach as dark, dingy basements. That's not on. It's not acceptable. A public official should not be saying that, should not be painting such a bleak picture of aspects of our events industry. He added, we're not allowed to hope. We're not allowed to dream. We can't plan for any events without social distancing. Scotland needs that confidence. We need a four nations approach. It's essential because businesses are suffering unnecessarily. The Transmit boss said he expects that once the UK government confirms the date for lifting social distancing in England, Scotland will follow with its own date for two weeks thereafter. To do otherwise, 
would not be rational, he explained, particularly when there are no restrictions on people travelling between England and Scotland. I think it would be completely unacceptable, but I also think it's very untenable that Reading Festival could be going on with 90,000 people, most of them camping, with no social distancing, and us not allowed to do an event at the Hydro or an event at the Royal Concert Hall for 2,000 people, Mr Ellis said. I don't think the Scottish public would accept that. He said he is supremely confident that Transmit, headlined by the Courtineers, Liam Gallagher and the Chemical Brothers, will take place this year at Glasgow Green. However, some type of Covid status certification will likely be required for those wanting to attend. He said he is even more reassured about the situation next year, by which time the crucial issue of underwriting insurance for large events should hopefully be settled. Mr Ellis had hoped to launch another festival, not on the scale of Transmit this year, but those plans have been pushed back to 2022. It's going to be a bit of a refresh on a previous festival I've done in the past, so I'm very excited about that. He is also working on a couple of new smaller events for next year, one catering to about 7,000 people and the other approximately 10,000 people. Meanwhile, a lot of shows originally meant to take place in 2020, such as Green Day, Guns N' Roses and The Killers, have also been moved to 2022. I know from trying to get dates at Murrayfield and Hamden as well, it's going to be very, very busy next year, Mr Ellis said. There's a lot to be announced, big event-wise, big festival, big outdoor concert-wise, so it's probably going to be one of the busiest years on record for Scotland in 2022, and 2023 is looking very strong too. This article is by Christy Dorsey. From the Herald Scotland, dated Friday 4th June 2021, from the Voices section. Bonnie Bridge, Aliens and Barack Obama. An article by Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. For the last quarter of a century, I have lived not so very far from Bonnybridge. Indeed, at one point, I stayed just a mile up the road. And yet in all that time, I have never seen a UFO. I can't tell you how disappointed I am. Isn't Bonnybridge supposed to be UFO central? Of course, part of me doesn't really believe in them. Or rather, I find it hard to accept that they are alien in origin. I mean, interstellar travel is quite time-consuming on the whole. Voyager 1 launched in 1977, and scientists reckon it will take another 300 years before it reaches the Oort cloud, the most distant region of our solar system, and will then take thousands of years to get through it. In short, it will be millennia before it even reaches our cosmic front door. So would it really be worth the time and faff to come the other way? And to end up in Bonnybridge? Nothing wrong with the place. It has a good library, a stretch of the Antonine Wall, and lovely canal walks, and I guess it's handy for Stirling Castle and the Kelpies. But even so, I'm not sure I'd want to travel across time and space for a day trip there. Now if it was Slamannan... However, perhaps I am projecting human notions onto intellects vast and cool and possibly unsympathetic. Well, they've had a long journey just as it's unlikely that any alien life forms would be carbon-based, bipeds, 
despite what Hollywood tells us. It's possible too that they might have means of propulsion beyond our ken. The news that US intelligence agencies will soon deliver a report to Congress on unidentified aerial phenomena has piqued our interest in UFOs again. Barack Obama told James Corden on TV recently that one of the first things he did when he became US president was ask if there was a secret US lab full of alien specimens. Turns out there wasn't. Or at least that's what he's telling us. It's a topic he returned to on a podcast with the journalist Ezra Klein with a little more gravitas. What he wondered would happen if we discovered alien life did indeed exist. There would be media arguments about, like, well, we need to spend a lot more money on weapon systems to defend ourselves, he speculated. New religions will pop up. And who knows what kind of arguments we get into. We're good at manufacturing arguments for each other. Sounds about right. We are so predictable as a species. What would we do if aliens turned up? We'd kill or convert, or at least try to. The idea of alien existence, though, is a profound challenge to us, if you think about it for more than a second. What if there are space cephalopods out there, whizzing through black holes and generally treating trips around the cosmos as if they were just popping out to the shops? That knowledge would prompt huge questions about our religious beliefs, our social structure and possibly our attitude to seafood. More importantly, It might also make us rethink our general sense of entitlement and up our selfness. What would it mean to us if we were to realise we are not the number one species in the universe? It's a question worth asking, isn't it? Whether you live near Bonnybridge or not. This article was by Teddy Jameson. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 4th of June 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Bear and Nicola Adams' Wild Adventure by Susan Swardwick, columnist and senior features writer. What's the story? Bear and Nicola Adams' Wild Adventure. Tell me more. Double Olympic gold medalist boxer Nicola Adams joins survivalist Bear Grylls for a gruelling challenge against the formidable backdrop of Dartmoor. It sees Adams pit her wits against the elements in rugged topography as she is pushed to her physical and mental limits. Grills is on hand to teach her the basic yet vital skills necessary to survive within this harsh terrain. Was Ray Mears busy? Very droll. It's the latest instalment in a series of Bear Grylls Wild Adventures specials for ITV. How do things pan out for Adams? Grills revealed in a recent Good Morning Britain interview that after being unable to light a fire in freezing cold weather and torrential rain on Dartmoor, he and Adams had to improvise by using hand sanitizer to cook an egg. Grills likes to hang out with celebrities. Indeed, over the years he's put everyone from actor Ben Stiller and Spice Girl Mel B to former US President Barack Obama through their paces in his various TV series. This is a man who willingly drinks his own pee. Affirmative, Grills has known to swig urine to prevent dehydration. When can I watch? Bear and Nicola Adams' Wild Adventure is on STV Friday 9.30pm. By Susan Swarbrick. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 4th of June 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Easter Ross, Helen Sedgwick on the Tarbot Peninsula. 
by Susan Swarbrick, columnist and senior features writer. Helen Sedgwick, author, Where Is It? The Tarbot Ness Headland on the Tarbot Peninsula, Easter Ross. Why do you go there? It's a short drive from my house and it is the place I turn to when I'm searching for inspiration, struggling to write, stressed, happy, restless or overwhelmed. The drive takes me past green fields and clusters of pretty houses with panoramic views of long sandy beaches. Then the road narrows and I follow the single grey track to the lighthouse. The weather always turns at this point. The wind picks up, the landscape becomes dominated by the deep glistening grey blues of the sea, the jagged blacks and browns of the rocks, the thorned yellow of gorse, and the distinctive red and white stripes of the lighthouse. The rest of the world fades away. How often do you go? As often as I need to. I've been known to visit on a daily basis. It's part of the rhythm of my life, which with a three-year-old can be unpredictable. But if I've not been for a while, I long to go back and I never tire of it. How did you discover it? I had no idea it was there before I moved to the area. I saw a sign on one of my first visits to Port Mahomock, followed the track to the lighthouse and found myself facing the most breathtaking view surrounded by the sea in almost every direction. I clambered over the rocks until I was at the furthest point of the land. The wind was wild and the waves were crashing against the rocks. I thought, this is the place. What's your favourite memory? There are so many it's hard to choose and every time is different. One that stands out is the first time I saw a whole pod of dolphins playing along the coast. That was magical. Who do you take? My partner, or daughter and any visitors we have. What do you take? If I'm going on my own, a notebook and a pen. It's a place that inspires ideas and compels me to write. A camera or binoculars if I want to watch for the dolphins. And always a woolly hat because it's never not windy and the wind has bite. What do you leave behind? Whatever is in my way. The landscape reminds me of how small we are and how vast the world is in comparison. Whatever was worrying me seems unimportant when I can watch the entire weather fronts moving across the sea. It's liberating. Sum it up in five words. Vast, jagged, windswept, ancient, inspiring. What travel spot is on your post-lockdown wish list? The same as my pre-lockdown wish list, Antarctica. I'm not sure if I'll ever get there, but the wildness and expanse of Tarbot Ness, particularly during a storm, is a pretty impressive substitute. When the Dead Comes Calling by Helen Sedgwick is published in paperback by Point Blank on Thursday, priced £8.99. By Susan Swarbrick. The Herald, Monday the 7th of June 2021. News. Acute Aortic Syndrome, Scottish Study, Hope for Patients. This article is by Caroline Wilson. A simple blood test could help protect thousands who are at risk of a potentially life-threatening and difficult-to-diagnose heart complication. Acute aortic syndrome, AAS, occurs when the wall of the aorta tears and blood begins to flow between the layers of the blood vessel wall. Patients with AAS need immediate treatment, in the most severe cases emergency surgery, to prevent the artery from rupturing and the patient dying. The most common risk factor is high blood pressure. Patients with aortic dissection at a young age, less than 40, are more likely to have birth heart defects such as bicuspid aortic valve or prior surgery. Diagnosing the disease in time is often difficult as symptoms, such as chest pain, can be attributed to other commoner conditions. 
Researchers at the universities of Dundee and Edinburgh have found that testing for a molecule called desmosine may speed up diagnosis of this deadly disease, which affects around 3,000 people in the UK every year. A study funded by the British Heart Foundation compared blood concentrations of desmosine in 53 patients known to have AAS and 106 people without the disease. They found that those suffering from AAS had almost double the concentration of desmosine in their blood. Desmosine levels were also associated with aortic growth, which occurs when the aorta becomes damaged. The team believe that desmosine is released into the blood when the tissues within the wall of the aorta break down, signalling that the aorta has been damaged and is at risk of expanding or bursting. Now they hope to use these findings to explore whether a simple blood test for desmosine could speed up the diagnosis of AAS in hospital. Mr. Maz Syed, Clinical Research Fellow at the BHF, Department for Cardiovascular Sciences, University of Edinburgh, said right now acute aortic syndrome is catastrophic. Diagnosis is difficult and when it comes to treatment, every second's delay can prove fatal. We urgently need a new, faster way to diagnose this catastrophic disease so that we can get patients the swift, life-saving treatment that they need. We need to confirm these results in bigger trials, but we hope that we have a potential biomarker that may help us detect a dangerous disease. Dr Anna Maria Choi, Clinical Senior Lecturer at Dundee School of Medicine, said time is absolutely vital when the aorta develops a tear and so anything that enables clinicians to make a rapid diagnosis and begin treatment right away will undoubtedly save lives. Desmosine is almost the holy grail in this regard because until now we do not have reliable blood tests for aortic tears. This is why my colleague Dr Jeffrey Huang sought to develop a simple test that would allow for quick diagnosis. Using this technology, we have been able to work with collaborators in Edinburgh to prove that desmosine is a biomarker of AAS. A long-term study is underway at the University of Edinburgh looking at the risk of aortic dissection in patients with birth heart defects. Aortic dissection is associated with a common congenital hereditary heart defect called a biscopid aortic valve where the valve has two leaflets instead of three and which occurs in around 1 in 100 births. Dr Alex Fletcher is leading a study which will monitor around 60 patients who are at risk of a dissection and aims to develop a more effective screening tool. The British Heart Foundation funded study is trying to identify those at the highest risk of having the complication who would benefit from corrective open heart surgery. This article is by Caroline Wilson. From the Health Scotland dated Monday 7th June 2021 from the Voices section. Did the church do a tawdry deal with power when it blessed the PM's wedding? 
This article is by Kevin McKenna. The zealotry of Catholic ultramontane groups often makes the tribalism of secular politics look like a community council kerfuffle over garden waste disposal. Granted, the current gender debate raging on social media has led to some downright beastly and vile imprecations being hurled back and forth. Columnists expose themselves to public ridicule in which they are told that they are worthless human beings. Or worse, that their grammar and syntax exist within the chaos theory of random things. But when you're being told you're destined for an eternity in hell and that purgatory is too good for you, it tends to play havoc with your ideas of self-worth and long-term security. My own view on hell is that it had better exist. Otherwise, I'm being asked to accept that there will be no punitive justice for the world's top genocidal maniacs and that we're all heading to the same place, no matter how virtuous we strive to be. As such, I reject the happy-go-lucky attitude of the late Scottish poet and balladeer Bon Scott when he suggested that hell ain't a bad place to be on ACDC's apocalyptic 1979 treatise on the last things, Highway to Hell. The Catholic Church in Scotland shelters more than a few of its own ecclesiastical flat earthers. I've had several robust exchanges with adherents to all of Scotland's main political creeds, but none have been as malevolent and sinister as those when I've criticised my own church. The award-winning journalist Catherine Devaney discovered this too in 2013 when she revealed how the former leader of Scotland's Catholics, Cardinal Keith O'Brien, had pursued a string of sexual liaisons with priests in his charge, while publicly condemning homosexuality as intrinsically disordered. On these occasions, you have to remind yourself that these people are still angry with the Vatican for refusing to discipline Father Ted for bringing the church into disrepute. Several of them have exulted this past week in the implications of Boris Johnson being granted all the ecclesiastical bells and whistles of Catholic matrimony at Westminster Cathedral. The Prime Minister is twice divorced, and among his five or six children, born to several women, is one who was born out of wedlock. Now, you may consider any commentary on such religiously esoteric affairs as essentially unimportant in a secular world, governed by certainty and provable fact. These matters remain salient, though, not only to many millions of Catholics, but also to those who acknowledge how important the Church's role can be in altering perceptions and making interventions in the world. What the Church says on climate change, the Palestinian conflict and the morality of affluent Western countries stockpiling vaccines while third world nations struggle to catch up is important. World leaders still care about what the Pope has to say on these because it draws on thousands of years of gathered Judeo-Christian philosophy that underpins civilization's judicial framework of basic human rights. His words still have the power to influence mass public opinion. As such, any apparent idiosyncrasies and contradictions around the sacrament of matrimony has the potential to damage the Church's credibility when it seeks to provide clarity and consistency in global secular matters. 
It's impossible to overstate how intrinsic to the Catholic Church's entire canon of teaching the sacrament of matrimony between a man and a woman is. Without this, many of the rest of the Church's essential truths fall. The central relationship mirrors God's relationship with his people. It forms a bridge between the human and the divine, and thus offers hope when human structures inevitably fail. As with each of the other six sacraments, matrimony is a sacred event where Catholics and their Christian brothers and sisters in other denominations can encounter the grace and love of God. The Church doesn't offer this as merely gilded symbolism to provide a dash of Hollywood to its important ceremonies or provide a Baroque setting for the wedding pictures. This is real. In the days since the marriage of the Prime Minister to his fiancée, Carrie Simmons, an assortment of learned Catholic commentators have had time to regroup and provide a defence of the apparent contradictions implicit in the Church's role in it. These have gathered around one seemingly immutable truth, that as Mr Johnson's two previous marriages were not conducted under Catholic rites, his third marriage in Rome's eyes is really his first. Quite what this communicates to other Christian denominations who share the Catholic Church's beliefs about the sacrament of matrimony is not explained. You could start with insulting and disrespectful. Mr Johnson's previously reported thoughts on Christian faith suggest he views it as a vestigial accoutrement. He has dismissed as pretentious any thoughts he might be a serious practising Christian and that it's A bit like trying to get virgin radio when you're driving through the Chilterns. It sort of comes and goes. It may be that the church has performed a complex exercise of ecclesiastical contortions, whereby it could satisfy itself that none of its ancient and sacred beliefs were harmed in the making of this production. But what does this say to the great number of faithful Catholics and their chosen spouses? of whom many are not themselves Catholic, who have been denied the privilege of a Catholic wedding owing to their not-quite-pucker matrimonial history. What does it say also to the many sincere gay Catholics who were created in God's image too? If the Church can seemingly provide an ingenious route map for powerful people to divest themselves of any little obstacles standing in the way of a big fat Catholic wedding, then why not provide something similar for its lesser anointed members? As a lifelong Catholic who still clings to the hope that the Church provides in chaos and error, I wish I could provide some clarity, but I can't. As things stand, the Church is asking the world to heed its wisdom on the great apocalyptic threats which imperil the world. Yet on one of its own most essential truths, there is no clarity only the creeping suspicion that a tawdry deal has been concluded with power. This article is by Kevin McKenna. The Herald, Tuesday the 8th of June 2021. News. Sticks Pool Hall in Kirkcaldy linked to Covid outbreak with almost 40 infected. This article is by Jodie Harrison. Customers of a popular pool hall have been urged to get tested for Covid-19 after it was identified as the source of an outbreak of the virus. NHS Fife has said 
that 38 people linked to the Styx Pool Hall in Victoria Road, Kirkcaldy, have tested positive for the coronavirus and are trying to trace other patrons who were at the venue on Saturday the 29th of May. Contact tracers have already been in touch with a number of patrons and are asking any people who were in the hall to contact the Health Board's public health team. The pool hall has now been closed until the 11th of June. The Health Board released a statement saying with restrictions having been eased across much of the country last weekend, local people in Kirkcaldy and across Fife are being reminded to follow the facts public health guidance. This means wearing appropriate face coverings, avoiding crowded places, cleaning hands and surfaces, remaining two metres apart wherever possible and self-isolating immediately should anyone develop the signs or symptoms of COVID-19, such as a new continuous cough, a fever or a loss or change in the sense of smell or taste. Testing remains a vital part of preventing spread of the virus and Pfeifers are encouraged to visit one of the local testing sites established across Fife if they have any symptoms or are concerned that they may have been in contact with a positive case. Anyone who was in the hall on Saturday the 29th of May is being urged to contact NHS Fife on 01592 226435. That's 01592226435. Or email fife, F I F E dot H P T at NHS dot Scott. This article is by Jodie Harrison. From the Health Scotland, dated Tuesday, 8th June 2021. From the Voices section. Sausage Row reveals much about the UK's relationship with continental cousins. An article by Michael Settle. Jim Hacker would be appalled. The EU could be about to ban the Great British Sausage. The protagonist of the 1980s popular BBC comedy Yes Minister famously hit out at the bureaucratic Bonapartes and Commissars of Brussels, as he labelled them. We have swallowed the wine lake. We have swallowed the butter mountain. We have watched our French friends beating up British lorry drivers carrying good British lamb to the French public. We have bowed and scraped, doffed our caps, tugged our forelocks and turned the other cheek. But I say, enough is enough. What got the hapless hacker worked up was an apparent attempt by the EU to replace the British banger with the Euro sausage. The parallel with today's post-Brexit ding-dong is not quite direct, but it shows how the UK's relationship with our continental cousins has had its ups and downs for decades. George Eustace The UK government's Environment Secretary, not normally given to hyperbole, denounced the prospect of a ban on British sausages being sold to Northern Ireland as bonkers. It is all part of the post-Brexit to-do over the UK-EU protocol concerning trade between the mainland and Northern Ireland. At its heart is the trade border down the Irish Sea, created by Boris Johnson to get Brexit over the line but which is now coming back to haunt Downing Street on a daily basis.
The upshot is that a grace period that enables Northern Irish shops to continue selling chilled meats, including sausages and mints, ends at the end of this month. The European Commission is worried cheap goods from Northern Ireland could make their way into the single market, thus undermining it. It has already been angered by the UK government unilaterally extending grace periods in the protocol on supermarket goods and parcels. So, Brussels has now warned that it is prepared to act, firmly and resolutely, to ensure the UK abides by its agreed commitments and does not unilaterally grant an extension that it says would be a clear and legal breach of the UK-EU trade agreement. One concern is that the Commission might retaliate by slapping tariffs and quotas on some products entering the EU, which some fear could spark a trade war. Mr Eustace complained the bloc was being overly bureaucratic and had been slow to engage with efforts to iron out difficulties ahead of the ending of the grace period. The minister admitted he had no idea why the EU had imposed idiosyncratic rules on the movements of chilled meats. I suspect, he declared, it links to some kind of perception that they can't really trust any country other than an EU country to make sausages. That's a nonsense. We've got a very good sausage industry in this country. We've got the highest standards of food hygiene in the world. In a line that could have been straight out of Yes Minister, the Secretary of State added, there's no problem with our sausages, or indeed our chicken nuggets. The sausage row has blown up on the eve of a meeting between Maros Sefcovic, the European Commission Vice President, and Lord Frost, the Cabinet Minister for post-Brexit delivery. Mr Sefcovic made clear Brussels was ready to play hardball to ensure that the UK abided by its international commitments. Making clear the Commission would not tolerate further failures of compliance by London, Mr Sefcovic added, Unfortunately, we see numerous and fundamental gaps in the UK's implementation, even though the protocol entered into force over 17 months ago. The timing, with G7 leaders due to touch down in Britain for their Cornish summit in the next day or so, is not great. Joe Biden, the US President, is said to want to use the power gathering to impress upon Boris Johnson the importance he attaches to maintaining the protocol. Indeed, the Prime Minister has this week already had talks on the sausage row with Emmanuel Macron, the French President. Asked what he expected Mr Biden would think of the current situation, Mr Eustace replied, I suspect any US administration would be amazed if you were to say, for instance, a sausage from Texas couldn't be sold to California. There would be an outright ban. They really wouldn't understand how that could even be contemplated. Downing Street, not for the first time, called on Brussels to show common sense and pragmatism to get through the latest post-Brexit impasse complaining that Britain did not expect the EU to take a purist approach over the protocol. Tonight, Mr Sefcovic and Lord Frost are expected to have dinner ahead of their talks tomorrow. It's not known if sausages will literally be on the menu. But with civil unrest in Northern Ireland already having taken place over the Irish Sea trade border, divisions deepening within unionist ranks over the protocol and the loyalist marching season on the horizon, a solution now needs to be found, and quickly. 
This article was by Mike Settle. And this is from the Herald Arts and Entertainment section. Arifa Akbar's sister died of the same illness that killed her favourite poet, John Keats. Consumed, a sister story. Arifa Akbar, Scepter, £16.99, reviewed by Shirley Whiteside. Reading Arifa Akbar's moving memoir brought to mind a quote from Anna Karenina. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Consumed is subtitled A Sister's Story and centres around Akbar's quest to understand Fauzia, her older sister, who died suddenly after years of mental and physical ill health. Akbar is cast adrift on a sea of memories that take on new meanings as she reassesses her relationships with her family and Fauzia in particular. Consumed is not a linear account of Akbar's life. Instead, she expertly intertwines past and present, exploring the healing power of art, the history of tuberculosis and the shocking loss of her artist sister. Akbar's recollection of her early life in Lahore, Pakistan, is full of sunshine and a sense of freedom. Looking back with adult eyes, she wonders whether Fauzia's later troubles had their origins there. For reasons that never became clear, Fauzia's father disliked his older daughter and failed to hide the fact. For Akbar, the reverse was true. Her father adored her, and she has joyful memories of spending time with him. The family left their familiar life in Lahore behind to move to London in search of work. Homeless and penniless, they find a room in a derelict squat in Hampstead. Akbar draws the comparison between her family's poverty and the affluent area in which they previously lived without a hint of self-pity. Her unsentimental style serves her story well. The emotional highs and lows give more power due to the lack of mawkishness. Akbar's mother, Bella, emerges as an unlikely heroine, refusing to teach her daughters to cook and keep house because she doesn't want them to endure an unhappy marriage like her own. She makes an important contribution to this memoir, finding old photos and recalling painful events, helping her daughter untangle their family story. When Akbar receives a phone call informing her of Fauzia's illness, the sisters have not been close for several years. She goes to visit Fauzia at the Royal Free Hospital, assuming that her sister will be discharged in a few days as she had been before. The doctors struggle to find the underlying cause of Fauzia's symptoms and it's only after her death that a rare form of tuberculosis is confirmed. This leads Akbar to explore the life of the poet Keats, a favourite of Fauzia, who succumbed to TB aged just 25. This was not unusual in the 18th and 19th centuries when the disease reached epidemic levels in Europe. Often associated with extreme poverty and deprivation, the illness's physical manifestations, glittering, fevered eyes, crimson lips and emaciation, would become fashionable, a sort of consumption chic, echoed in the 1990s fashion for so-called heroin chic. For the healthy, makeup to whiten the skin and redden the lips became popular society accessories. Akbar's desperate need to fill the yawning gap left by Fauzia's death is skilfully and touchingly conveyed. She does not spare herself as she picks apart the fabric of her family's life, from her parents' unhappy marriage to her exasperation as Fauzia entered another phase of self-destruction. The relationship between the sisters is complex, ranging from their intimacy while sharing a bedroom as teenagers to their drifting apart as adults. 
Guilt plays a significant role, with Akbar feeling she didn't do enough to help Fazia, while also feeling that her sister took up too much time and energy. Disease consumed Fazia and Akbar became consumed with a need to understand her sister. It takes time, but rediscovering Fazia's art finally brings Akbar a measure of peace. This is a beautifully written memoir, with the ghost of Fazia haunting every page. And that was from the Herald Arts and Entertainment section. And this is from the Herald Arts and Entertainment section. Galleries travel through time with show inspired by Scottish geology by Jan Patience. As houses go, Mount Stuart on the island of Butte is a doozy, a lavish neo-Gothic broth of a building which sits overlooking the Firth of Clyde amidst 300 acres of gardens, its red sandstone exterior presenting a visual spectacle in its own right. And that's before you step inside to be met with an 80-foot-tall hallway inlaid with more than 20 types of marble. Look skywards and your eyes are dazzled by a vaulted map of the stars inlaid with glass crystals. Signs of the zodiac and their corresponding seasons illuminate the stained glass windows, shedding light on various spots according to the time of day. It comes as no surprise to learn that it took a team of craftsmen 20 years to complete the interiors part of a major refurbishment in the late 19th century by the third Marquess of Butte, following a fire which damaged the fabric of the older, smaller Georgian mansion. With 117 rooms, full-size chapel, crypt and marble swimming pool in the basement, the Mount Stuart which exists today is a blousy younger sibling of the original house built in 1719. It's easy to get lost in the detail of Mount Stuart, and since 2001, the house has provided both an inspiration and a location for artists taking part in its acclaimed contemporary visual arts programme. For a house which is replete with ancient rocks, kneel down in the upper gallery and you can actually see the flattened fossilised bodies of sea creatures in limestone, which have been dead for several millennia. It seems entirely appropriate that the 20th anniversary of this programme is marked by an exhibition inspired by geology. In a new body of work, there is a volcano behind my house. Butte-based artist Ilana Halperin strips away layer after layer and examines the relationships between rocks and minerals, between family and the deep time of the earth. The geologic phenomenon of Butte is her backdrop, in particular the Sudi, an extinct volcano behind her home in Kilchatan Bay. The highland boundary fault line bisects the island, binding two migratory landmasses together. Halperin's interest in geology has been a constant in her life since attending an art and music-based high school in New York as a teenager where she trained as a stone carver. The streets of New York, she laughs as we sit outside Mount Stewart in the sun, are not paved with gold but with glittering mica schist. The same type of rock inhabits the coast of Maine, vast areas of Scotland and Riverside Park along the Hudson. She describes this beautifully thoughtful new body of work as a constellation combining personal poetic and corporeal responses to the house and island. Situated throughout the building, in the drawing room, purple library, gallery, family and horoscope bedrooms and the crypt, specially commissioned sculptures, woven textiles and watercolours riff on the immigrant minerals that form the objects and architecture of Mount Stuart. Like many exhibitions seeing the light of day in 2021, 
This show should have been staged last year, although some of the work, such as two sets of watercolour paintings and etched mica books in the library, have been completed over a year ago. The 2021 iteration is, she says, a different proposition from the one which might have been. Partly, this is down to changes in Halperin's life, mirroring the experience of many during the pandemic. She explains the exhibition at Mount Stewart had been waiting, growing, in a time requiring almost geologic patience. For me, this year has been a year unlike any other, as my mother died in September. It's been a year of grief for me and my family, as for so many families here and across the world. In Judaism, we place stones in memory of those we love. We have a lot of stones to place this year. The sense of deep time and us human beings rattling around in layers and layers of geological soup is palpable in Halperin's work. Her late mother, Gail Portnell Halperin, was an innovative sportswear and knitwear designer who, under her brand Snazzy, helped revolutionise women's fashion in the 1960s. Looking at a series of 36 watercolours by Halperin in Mount Stewart's upper gallery, created as a direct response to the geological forms of Butte, you can see in the colours she uses another line being drawn between her mother's eye for mid-20th century colour and her memories of the landforms. Again, her mother's skill as a knitwear designer is reflected in two large-scale woven textile works inspired by her field studies. Halperin worked with local designer and producer Butte Fabrics to create these works. As she notes, textile, like sedentary rock, is produced through an incremental process of growth a geology of accumulated materials. These soft, undulating works placed in different bedrooms are steeped in layers of memory and meaning. In Mount Stewart's crypt, Halperin's newest sculptural work, The Rock Cycle, flips the idea that rocks by definition are ancient. A series of oddly misshapen stone-like objects have been arranged around circular floor tiles swaddled by vaulted columns. These new hybrid rocks started life as either clay bricks or Victorian drainage tiles originally made on Butte and salvaged by Halperin over the years. In a process similar to that which forms stalactites in caves, she sent the bricks and tiles to Saint-Nectaire in France where they were subjected to a process of being constantly drowned by calcifying springs which led a new layer of limestone to develop. Every new work created by Halperin finds its way into the fabric of Mount Stewart. Even though the work has to compete against the jostling grandeur of the house, for a book lover like myself, the standout work has to be the library, in the library. To reach it, you walk through the drawing room, which basks under a ceiling encrusted with mica. Halperin's library consists of etched books, as mineral samples of mica are known, of 400 to 800 million year old glittering rocks, from the north of Scotland and New England. Halperin's laser etchings on these glittering prizes, which sit companionably with ancient tomes on vast shelves, are a cross between cave drawings and kitsch 1970 ornaments. Talk about playing time travel by the book, you'll find it all on Butte, a companion audio work to There is a Volcano Beside My House called Excerpts from the Library, will be presented by Ilana Halperin and others as part of Glasgow International from June the 11th. Ilana Halperin, there is a volcano behind my house, Mount Stuart, Rossi, Isle of Butte. Critics' Choice One could only imagine what the overheated visual imagination of the late Willie Roger would have made of the Covid-19 pandemic. 
There's no doubting it would have fed into this master printmaker's art and reflected a gamut of emotions back at the viewer in one fell swoop. Roger, who died in 2018 at the age of 88, was one of Scotland's most respected printmakers, able to reflect poignancy, pathos, bathos and beauty, often with nothing more than the cut of a Stanley knife into an old piece of lino. In later life, he started painting in oils and his ability to pair an imagined scene back to basics while losing none of its power was his calling card. Even to the end of his life, he was reflecting back what he felt and what he saw around him. Roger's last painting, made in 2012, was called The Party's Over. It depicts a smoky bar with a couple seated at one table and a man sweeping up while on the floor a lone couple dances. This painting by Willie Roger, RSA, is currently on show alongside previously unseen screen prints, woodcuts and lino cuts from his studio in the gallery of the Royal Scottish Academy on the Mound in Edinburgh. As the blurb says when you enter the virtual viewing room online, this is not a retrospective, nor even a survey of his work in the fullest sense of either term, but rather a selective body of work which scratches the surface of his prolific output. Primarily known for his work in the relief printmaking techniques of lino cut and woodcut, Roger printed without the use of a press. He basically didn't stop working in a wee attic room above his family home in Kirkintilloch for over seven decades. His back catalogue records several hundred edition prints and the same number or more which progressed no further than trial-proof stages before being overtaken by the next idea. This exhibition, as suggested by the title, shows work made from the early 1960s onwards and charts a distinct progression in style away from graphic prints towards the more figurative work for which he's now renowned. Some of the works which are for sale may be less familiar or previously unknown to admirers. They include a selection of intaglio and screen prints executed under Arthur Watson, PPRSA and his team at Peacock Printmakers in Aberdeen, with whom Roger enjoyed a long and fruitful relationship. Willie Roger across the board, Royal Scottish Academy, The Mound, Edinburgh. Monday to Saturday, 10am to 5pm, Sunday 12 till 5 until June the 20th. Free booking essential. And that was from the Herald Arts and Entertainment section. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.